We're here as a university family today, and it, it's at this moment I want to say a word about the death of our former president, Richard Lesher. Last night, at the end of our faculty, staff, Vespers, our president got up and announced that he had just died in California, out in the Loma Linda area. I called Vida, his wife, and Eileen last evening. They were standing by him as he breathed his last. He, he had come home from the hospital, 92 years old. Now, you have to be an old-timer around here to know or to remember that Richard Lesher came at a critical time in the life of this university. His steady hand, his compassionate heart, his strong resolve were a godsend at that moment. And for 10 years, he served there, 1984 to 1994. He retired in 94, and of course, Andreasons came. But what especially has endeared Vita and Richard Lesher and, and their daughter Eileen to this congregation and campus is that they chose, after retirement, they chose to stay right here, stayed in the groove, active on our board of elders, both Vita and Richard, uh, elders, active with the Sabbath school class. In fact, Dr. Lesher used to teach right over at the front section, a great class, retirees. In fact, get this, for 20 years after retirement, almost 20, they stayed right here. And so when I visited with Vita and Eileen last night, I had prayer with them on the phone. I assured them that today the family would gather and we would lift them up. In fact, they're watching live streaming right now from, from their home there in Southern California. We would pray for the hope and the comfort and the grace of Jesus to just surround them. And Martha, their, uh, Vita's daughter, Martha and Alger out there in the community as well. And then this morning early, we got the word also from the Middle East, by the way. There's a Middle East connection. The Lesher's were missionaries in Egypt for years. Uh, Ronalee Netteberg, her family, missionaries in Lebanon. They all knew each other. Ronalee fought a tough battle, and it came to an end this week. So we're remembering Kermit, and their three kids are all grads of Andrews University. You know what? The Bible's last prayer. Five words long. Say it out loud with me. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's the hope we have as a university community, as a worshiping congregation. Let's talk to him. Oh, God, we do have that hope. We are not, as Jose and June prayed just a moment ago, we are, we are not as those who have no hope. Be especially close to Vita and Eileen and the, and the tribe to Kermit and the children and the family. And may that what has ignited the mission of this university burn even more brightly. We have a world to reach in this generation. These last few moments, we give them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. George Knight. You've probably heard of him wrote a piece in a journal this summer. I read it. Begins with the, the title of his piece, by the way, begins with these two words, ground zero. And his opening word with an exclamation after it 
is uh, Hiroshima. As soon as I saw that word, I said, man, that's from, the, that's from the land of my birth. Hiroshima, we Americans say Hiroshima. I said, wait a minute, ground zero. My mom gave me a black and white album that dad put together. I pulled it out, sure enough, two black and white photos, ground zero. And by the way, what was the date on that? August 6, 1945. So we're talking about 72 years ago this month. Okay, so let's see the picture. Picture number one, let's go. No, back, come on, back, come on, guys. That, my dad did not take that one, by the way, but that's the picture the world saw just hours after this nuclear explosion obliterated an entire city in my homeland. Here are my dad's pictures. Here we go. Number one. Next. Number one is my dad's handwriting there. What does it say? Hiroshima. A-bomb center. They called it the A-bomb back then. That means about a half mile above that dome is where the nuclear device detonated and just... Picture number two. Look at that. Can you read my dad's handwriting underneath it? It's pretty small there. It says, the most operated on living survivor. That's seven years after. This is 1952. I don't know how my dad found out about it. He obviously spoke to this guy, this gentleman in Japanese. He'd been through multiple surgeries, obviously not at ground zero, somewhere in the periphery, still surviving seven years later. Ground zero. George says, okay, what's ground zero? So he, he throws by four definitions, and it's the fourth one that I hope will catch your mind and heart. Ground zero, he says, is where the action takes place. Ground zero is where change happens. Ground zero is where the course of world history is shifted in new directions. Here comes now number four. Put it on the screen, please. Ground zero in the great controversy between Christ and Satan is the struggle for the hearts and minds of the next generation. Just leave that up there. Let it hang there for a moment. Take a look at that. Ground zero in this intergalactic cosmic battle between light and darkness, ground zero in the great controversy between Christ, the protagonist, and Satan, the antagonist, is the struggle. Hey, wait a minute, guys. This is, this is why we exist. Is the struggle for the hearts and minds of what? The next generation. God raised this little campus up. Was it 1901, 1902? I forget. Emmanuel Missionary College. Raised it up. Why? Because of the ground zero mission we have. What's our theme for this weekend? Total engagement, building the kingdom. And oh, by the way, when you factor in, talking about this next generation that's already here, when you factor in the chaos and craziness that over the summer has gripped our nation, let's not talk about Barcelona and the world. Let's just talk about America right here. Last week in Charlottesville, what's going on with this country? Any notion of racial reconciliation movement is suddenly dissipated in this battle of press releases and press conferences, and where are we? What's happening? George Knight is absolutely right. Ground zero in the great controversy between Christ and Satan is the struggle for the hearts and minds of the next generation, end quote. And by the way, this struggle has been going on through the entire history of the human race. In fact, George quotes another George, and those of you who are in education, there are a whole bunch of you that are, the uh, American educator and influential educational theorist, I'm talking about George S. Counts, last century, wrote nine books. George quotes from one of those books with this prescient, in my humble opinion, prescient observation. Put the words on the screen for you. George Counts writes that to shape the educational policy is to guard the path that leads from the present to the future. 
Hmm. Throughout the centuries since special educational agencies were first established, the strategic position of the school has been appreciated by kings, emperors, and popes, by rebels, reformers, and prophets. Hence, among those opposing forces found in all complex societies, and I'm thinking great controversy, a struggle for the control of the school is always evident. Now, here comes the line. Every group or sect endeavors to pass on to its own children and to the children of others that culture which the group happens to esteem. Sound familiar? Last half of the sentence, and every privileged class seeks to perpetuate its favored position in society by means of education. Wow. Martin Luther, whose 500th anniversary, you're going to hear a whole lot more about as we move towards October. Martin Luther, that was his passion. That's why he was so big on teaching. He, to shape the next generation is to shape the future. Everybody knows it. Adolf Hitler knew it. Joseph Stalin knew it. Kim Jong-un knows it from North Korea. Ellen White, American reformer and spiritual leader, she knew it. Go for the young. We exist because of that vision. So, ground zero, George Knight, you're right. Ground zero in the great controversy between Christ and Satan is the struggle for the hearts and minds of the next generation. What are we going to do then? On the cusp of a new year, how then shall we live? Consider for a moment something Jesus said just a, literally a few paces away from ground zero Calvary. On the very morning, by the way, the very morning of his execution, I want you to picture Jesus' face please. He stands there, bound and gagged almost. Look at his face, bruised and bloodied from being jumped from behind and beaten by that godless Charlottesville-esque rabble in Caiaphas Judgment Hall. Look at him, one eye black and blue and swollen, nearly shut like a whooped prize fighter, the other eye still open and dark and clear but tired, splattered blood coagulated on his cheeks and drying into his beard, his lips still swelling further from the pummeling by human fists. He stands bound in front of the governor, and the governor ticked to high heavens for being awakened in this ungodly hour that is becoming more ungodly by the second. Pilate speaks. We pick the story up in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Take a look at it. John, chapter 18. John chapter 18, drop down to verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned, yo, prisoner, come here. Summoned Jesus and asked him, <clears throat> are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked or did others talk to you about me? Pilate stunned by the obvious nobility of whoever this is. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom, building the kingdom. Here's the original kingdom builder. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. 
what is truth? Pilate retorted. And there it is, just a few steps away from Ground Zero Calvary, the driving, compelling heart of Adventist education reduced to a single sentence, what is truth? This last spring, the chaplains and the pastors convened a group of Andrews students, not, key word, not members of our faith community. So over pizza downstairs here in the commons, Chaplain June led in an informal conversation. A young Baptist co-ed is in that circle eating pizza. So what do you think about Andrews University? She said, I like it here. A little bit later, what do you think about the Seventh-day Adventist church? She looked up. You know, it's strange, she said. I asked my Seventh-day Adventist friends, fellow students here at the university, I asked my Seventh-day Adventist friends what it is they believe, and they reply, how should I know? I just grew up in the church. When I heard that I'm telling you the gospel truth, I not only blushed, but my stomach just shriveled into a tiny little fist. Because I like to think that some of the, some of the brightest kids in our faith community are students in this university. It can't be those students she's talking about, can it? I mean, come on. They grew up in Adventist homes. They went to Adventist schools all their lives. I've been brooding over her words all summer. What do you believe? Should I know? I just grew up in the church. But you know what? I thank God for that little Baptist co-ed. Number one, she likes being here. Number two, she has Adventist friends. Number three, she came to share some pizza with us. And number four, maybe she was telling us something we needed to hear. What Jesus just said to Pilate as we stood there listening. Repeat the words again, verse 37. You're a king then, Pilate shoots back. Jesus replies, verse 37, you say that I am a king? In fact, for the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. I have one mission for which I was born. I have one, I have one reason for my life. I have one reason why I teach in this university. I have one reason why I serve in this university. I have one reason why I lead in this university. I have one reason why I preach in this university. I came into the world to testify to truth. What truth? The truth I was talking about last night, along with my 11, when I said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. That truth, the truth as it is in Jesus. That's the fire in the belly of the Seventh-day Adventist University, the truth as it is in Jesus. George Knight, ground zero. How do you put it? Ground zero in the great controversy between Christ and Satan is the struggle for the hearts and minds of the next generation. That's our mission. That's what we're all about led to this university so that we might engage with Christ in this struggle, his struggle, his struggle. 
for the hearts and minds of the next generation. You say, hi, nice try, Dwight. That's your mission, not my mission. And you know what? You're absolutely right. It is my mission, but it is not my mission alone because I want to tell you something that you already have sensed and you've known this a long time anyway. I know. You know as well as I do that they'll listen more closely to you than they ever will to me. I'm talking about those moments in the class. They're there. For some reason today, the passion of your life that's being poured out in your, in your lecture about this discipline that you love, it's just, just pouring into the space of that room. Something happens. You know, I teach graduate students over here at uh, the Theological Seminary. That something is not every day. I understand that. But there are days, and you know it. Mind and heart connected with the young, seated in those, at those desks in front of you. And it's at that moment, they're wide-eyed. You know why? Because they're wannabes. They want to be what you are. The, your, grasp, your lucid grasp of the discipline you champion. They want to be just like you. And when this comes out of you, and by the way, you could be the most bashful professor on this campus, or you could be the most exuberant one around. It doesn't matter your personality type at all. You are just so caught up. There is just like fire inside of you. I want to suggest to you that that fire moment, and we all know those moments when we teach, that fire moment is the moment of Christ Jesus where he steps into that space He doesn't care what your discipline is. He led you into the discipline you have chosen. But that's his perfect entree out of that moment of hot passion for learning and growing. That's his moment, and he steps into the air. You're not talking theology. You don't work for the religion department. You have your own calling. But in the exercise of that calling, in the moment when mind to mind... And don't ask me why, but it's almost like they're, they're breathless. They're just sitting there in the palm of your hand, which is a nail-scarred hand that says, I made you for this. I made you for this. And you know it's true because sometimes it surprises even you. When the class empties and everybody's gone and you're all alone and you're, you're flipping your computer shut, you sense he was here. He walked into my room today. And I wasn't even talking about him. Wow. So I tell you what, my friend, nice try. You can't pin that mission on me. It's ours. You're making a sale. Financial investor that you are, you're making a sale. You're down, you're crunching the numbers. You are waxing eloquent about the state of the market today, and these clients are just, they're just there. That moment when your palm is the palm of Christ is the Christ moment for your kind of work. Huge respect for you in that split second. It happens here through you, through us. So, here's the question. How can I be comfortable testifying to the truth as it is in Jesus day in and day out? Let me end with this. 
In anticipation of the upcoming 500th anniversary of the Wittenberg door and Luther and the Reformation, I read three biographies of Luther this summer and uh, scanned two others. In the biography by the English historian Derek Wilson, title of his biography, Luther, Out of the Storm, this is fascinating. In describing the deep, the deep angst, uh, this, this, this a grinding sense of being utterly lost. It was so, it was so bad for Luther. He coined a, Jum- a German word for it, Anfechtungen. He was in the grip of Anfechtungen. Wilson makes the point that it was that moment, it was, it, it was those moments that something happens. Put his, just one line, put it on the screen for you. Derek Wilson, his, Luther. Luther's Intellectual breakthroughs came from his own spiritual struggle, not from his wearisome working of the academic treadmill. The Lord knows we all have those treadmills to have to grind through every single day. That, as important as those treadmills are, what was happening to Luther is beyond the treadmill. It's something that, it's something he encounters all alone. Sometimes for days and nights while he's going around his work, he's just, this anfektungen is deep within his soul. He's struggling for God, struggling. The point is, he's, what's happening is he's making it his own. It's becoming his. It's not a theory. It's not a piece of knowledge. It's now, it's just moving in. And Wilson points out it's how that angst that leads to the Bible, that leads to God, to Christ, to the Calvary and the Reformation. One day, Luther, Luther was so troubled by, about God that his spiritual mentor, Johann von Staupitz, who was vicar general of the Augustinian order that Luther was a part of as a monk and a priest, Staupitz is listening to Luther. By the way, Staupitz and Luther loved each other all the way through until Staupitz died, though they would have to part company theologically. Staupitz is listening to Luther, distraught over God, and at one point, he interrupts, Martin, God is not angry at you, but you are angry at him. Look at the cross. Look at the cross, Martin. Jesus stands bound and almost gagged before Pilate that Friday morning early. He knows just a few steps away, ground zero. But he also knows that on Tuesday afternoon, his last time in the sacred temple with a crowd around him, he announced to everyone who would listen the words in John 12, 32, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to me. And then John Boy scribbles in the next line, he spoke of his impending death, crucifixion, lifted up between heaven and earth, hoisted, ground zero of the cross. That's the explosive drawing that, that pulls us into the vortex of the great controversy, the struggle for the young minds and hearts of the next generation for which you were born. You were born for this. Do you understand? Everything you do has been born for this. So what would happen if you and I every morning had a quiet nook alone and somehow we tiptoe up to the cross again?
You get there however you, way you wish to get there. You want to read the Gospels one at a time. I mean, the, the last chapters of the Gospels one at a time. You want to read some book you love about Calvary, Desire of Ages, Steps of Christ. It doesn't matter to me. But what would happen if you and I every morning would kneel at ground zero, the ground zero of the cross, and we would look up into that face? He's not hanging on the cross now. It's a beautiful face. No coagulated blood, no crown of thorns, but He's still the Savior of the world. What would happen if every day we prayed the prayer of Fanny Crosby? You remember Fanny Crosby? I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice, and it speaks thy love to me. And I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Sing it. Draw me nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where thou hast died. Draw me nearer, 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 blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. What would happen if every morning that were our prayer? We just prayed it. We sang it even to him. I don't know where those kids that this little Baptist co-ed talked to are going to be this year. It is very possible they will be in your classes. So, hey, how, how do I know? I just grew up in the church. Let's reverse the testimony. Let's move from growing up in the church to growing up in Christ. Because that kid, after that red-hot moment when you've had the whole class, there's going to be a kid one day who waits for everybody else to leave, and he's standing in front of you, and he says, Listen, Prof, I've been noticing something. Would you please tell me about your faith? And you will open your mouth, I promise you. You will open your mouth, and words will come out of the mouth you did not expect, because that's the ground zero moment that all of heaven has called you for. Because of you at Andrews University, that kid, that girl, knows Jesus. Amen and amen.